Welcome to Paragoricon, a podcast of strangeness and truth. As Marie Curie said, nothing in life is to be feared, it is only to be understood. Now is the time to understand more so that we may fear less. Join us as we explore the darker corners of existence. Welcome to Paragoricon, I'm Jack Parker. And I'm JJ Roy. So, what is our topic for today, JJ? Human crushes. Human Um, crushes, do you like me, Vincent D'Onofrio, circle Y in, or maybe. I can only assume he's what we're talking about here. Jack, I'm gonna need you, I'm gonna need you to pass him this note that I wrote. You're not supposed to open it, Jack. You're just supposed to pass it. I'm sorry, I'm snoopy. (laughs) Now Vincent's never going to ask me to the fall ball. He was never going to ask either of us. <laughs> Hopeless thing. Between Chuck Tingle and Vincent D'Onofrio, I basically go to Twitter to read about what they're doing. And yes. I think the best part was when he was trying to detract bullies away from the Women's March by posting a picture of himself in a tiny sombrero so that trolls could be mean to him. <laughs> All right, so we're we're not actually talking about the the awkward and seethingly embarrassing phenomena that many of us are acquainted with. This is about crushes that kill people. Yeah, it's very serious and terrifying. A human crush of the scary variety. I'm going to give you a definition that's sort of a, a gist of what we're talking about. This is from Segan's Medical Dictionary. A human crush is a human disaster which occurs during religious pilgrimages or professional sporting and music events. When crowds fall prey to mass panic due to an explosion, fire, or other triggering event which causes a stampede. Death is caused by compressive asphyxiation, also known as crowd crush, rather than trampling, resulting from the combination of horizontal pushing and vertical stacking, often against a closed exit or route of egress. So basically, imagine a panic where you're then crushed to death against a wall by the sheer mass of people behind you. You can also see this in, like, zombie movies, right? So when a gigantic crowd of zombies runs up against a wall, you'll generally see some of the zombies in the front getting squished. And this happens in real life with live people. As we'll discuss later, this definition, it gives you a gist, but some of the terms that it uses aren't necessarily accurate. For example, a stampede. Uh, the reason why a crowd crush happens is because a stampede doesn't actually happen. If a stampede happened, everybody would be moving forward just really fast, right? A crowd crush happens when something stops that forward progress, motion, whatever you want to call it. Um, there's other things such as, like, attributing it to panic, which we'll find are not particularly accurate. But before we get into all those subtleties, we'll go ahead and give you some examples of two more commonly characterized kinds of human crush. Again, these are just sort of sketches, so you know what we're talking about. One of them is a flight response to get away from something. The second kind is the craze towards something. So think the way that people always talk about Black Friday here in America, where people will rush the gates. There's actually a number of real tragedies that happen when people en masse rush forward to get some kind of prize. Sometimes it's food or like toys for children, which is incredibly dark. 
When you look at it on the surface, there are characteristics that sort of divide them up into these two classes. But when you actually look at the mechanics of how the disaster happens, they share similarities. And these similarities are what engineers and people that do basically crowd control science are concerned with. Just to give you some examples, the flight response at sporting events and concerts and back in, you know, like the old timey days, this would happen a lot in theaters and circuses. This is why you're not allowed to yell fire in a crowded theater is because people have done that and there will be a crowd crush and people will be injured. Also, fires in theaters used to be really severe. Like many, many, many people would die if a fire happened in a theater because they didn't have good safety exits, etc. Yeah. Oh, is that have to do with the celluloid stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So there would be a combination of the fact that Theaters basically are a large box, if you've got like a proscenium type theater. They're basically a giant cube that you pack a ton of people into, you line the stage with flammable heavy curtains, and then you have footlights to light it that were either literally fire or gas lights that could flare up. And so you had a room filled with people, flammable objects with very few exits that had open flames in it, turned up really high so that people could see the action, because this is before we had, like, floodlights and stuff. Later in theaters, when you had early celluloid, it was common for the projection camera to overheat, catch fire, and that would start a fire in a movie theater. But now we have things like fire-resistant curtains, we have more exits, etc., etc., etc. We've really worked on this problem. Good. Examples of human crushes that happen when people are running from this in recent memory include things like the Hillsborough disaster, where there was a fire at a soccer match. There's also the Station House fire. Both of these disasters you can go and look up the video of on YouTube. Warnings, they're really some of the most disturbing footage I've ever watched, and I kind of make a habit of watching sort of disturbing footage. They're pretty upsetting. The Station House fire features footage of live human beings burning to death, so we'll link those to you. <laughs> the the Hillsborough disaster, I also want to point out, is particularly interesting because the police in that case actively concealed the reasons for the disaster and uh, subverted accuracy in media reports. Yeah. It's horrifying. The reason for the disaster didn't actually come to light until like 20 years later. Mm -hmm. I will go ahead and throw in a quote here. So one of the papers that we drew a lot of good information from is written by John J. Fruin. It's called The Causes and Prevention of Crowd Disasters and was originally presented at the first international conference on engineering and crowd safety in 1993. He says about this kind of disaster that, quote, Flight occurs where people experience either a real or perceived threat. Frequently mislabeled a panic, closer investigation usually shows that flight was a reasonable group reaction under the perceived circumstances. These incidents often show mutual cooperation and assistance among individuals within the group rather than destructive behavior. So I guess the takeaway from this is that it's not just people freaking out for no reason, bah! it's that there's literally a threat to their lives and that they very logically try to move away from it, but then that movement is impeded and then problems happen. So those were the fear response crowd disasters. And then there were also crazes where people are trying to get towards some sort of prized object. Um, so this occurs when an announcement is made that a limited number of, for example, free gifts will be handed out or when a bottleneck impedes the flow of people all going to the same place for some other kind of reason. So 
people are moving towards something and that's what initiates the movement necessary for this to happen. So there was the Kadinka tragedy, which happened at the coronation of Tsar Nicholas II. The citizens had heard that he was giving away certain gifts at the coronation, and they heard that maybe they were running out of it, and also that there was extra gifts involved. There was actually a gold coin in the cups that were being given out. Mm -hmm. Over a thousand people died, and Mm -hmm. the other people in the crowd didn't know what was happening. It's really disturbing that, like, a gigantic mass of people, you know, parents and their children, because a lot of these are because parents want to get good stuff for their kids. And so kids will get wrapped up in these human crushes, and that makes it extra terrible. In researching this, I expected to find a lot of horror stories about Black Friday of people being crushed to death in human crushes, because it's one of the favorite things for, like, news stations to report on about Black Friday is, ooh, look at these crowds of people acting like zombies. What a bunch of crazed people. But actually... Uh, Though there are plenty of injuries and deaths associated with Black Friday, pretty much none of them are attributed to human crushes. People might be injured, but there's only one person that has died within memory due to human crush. Pretty much everybody who dies on Black Friday doesn't actually die because the crowd kills them. They die because they're out in the parking lot and they get shot or stabbed or somebody tries to, like, steal what they've got. Or a lot of them actually just die from car accidents because they're, like, sleepy or distracted. Uh, I did find an interesting story about a man who was, quote, listed as a shirtless man who used his belt as a whip last year to do injury to other Black Friday shoppers. So pro tip, the next time you really need something on Black Friday, strip down and use your belt. But anyways, you can look up all this kind of stuff on the cool website, blackfridaydeathcount.com. So have fun if you want to learn more about the ways that people kill each other on Black Friday. But one thing you can know is that the misconception of people trampling one another to death on Black Friday is simply not true. So I think now we'll go into sort of a more detailed case study of flight-based human crush and craze-based human crush. I'm going to go ahead and talk about the Brooklyn Bridge Stampede. On May 24th, 1883... President Chester A. Arthur and an entourage crossed the world's largest suspension bridge on its opening day, the Brooklyn Bridge. On that first day, 1,800 vehicles and 150,300 people crossed from Brooklyn to Manhattan, or vice versa. At the time, the Brooklyn Bridge was actually 50% longer than any other bridge of its type in the world, and, understandably, that made people really nervous. It was only six days after this opening, after the president had marched across it to great fanfare, that the Brooklyn Bridge stampede or the Brooklyn Bridge disaster occurred. Just in case you've never been on the Brooklyn Bridge, it's not particularly different today from how it was previously. It's just the kinds of traffic that crossed it were different. So originally, the bottom tier was for a train that carried things and carriages and early automobiles. And above it, there was a walkway for pedestrian traffic and bikes. Pedestrians would get to this upper walkway through a set of stairwells at either end. May 30th was a Wednesday, and... One of the reasons why people think that this disaster may have happened is that it took place on Dedication Day, which was sort of the precursor to Memorial Day. So a lot of businesses were closed. There were lots of people going around and basically visiting graveyards, placing flowers, and taking the day off. It was essentially a holiday. And one of the main things that 
people did is they would cross over from Manhattan to visit graveyards in Brooklyn. And also they would take in the view because the Brooklyn Bridge at the time gave one of the most stunning views over the East River of the city. And so there was supposedly a lot of loitering. The following is a quote from an original report from the New York Sun regarding the disaster. When the rain was over yesterday afternoon, the Brooklyn Bridge, which had its crowds in the morning but had become comparatively open again, began to threaten a blockade. With the hundreds who came downtown to the New York gates were hundreds of men in the uniform of the Grand Army of the Republic. Most of the people strolled over to Brooklyn and then turned back without leaving the bridge. Thousands were coming over from Brooklyn, returning from cemeteries where soldiers' graves had been decorated, and taking advantage of the holiday to see the bridge. There were not so many on the bridge as on the day after the opening, or on the following Sunday, but they seemed inclined to loiter. There would be an open space from 50 to 100 feet, and then a dense jam. And so, from this description, this was not just like a steady stream of people, it was a bunched up crowd. Sort of, I, I guess, comparable to what you might see in a street fair, where there's like streams of people moving, but then there's also like open spaces, and then also like clumps of people clumped up together. Anyways, the incident started when on the Manhattan side of the bridge, a woman tripped and fell down the nine-foot stairwell there. As she did this, she screamed. And unfortunately, hearing the scream incited a rush of panic on behalf of the people. This is how it was described, is that combining with the sort of natural anxieties that people had about the bridge, hearing a scream sort of sparked a flame of panic that quickly spread through the various people on the bridge. So after she tripped, other people tripped down the stairwell as well after her, and a human crush began to emerge. There are accounts where men held children overhead trying to keep them out of the crush. People surged in this desperate urge to get off the bridge because they were afraid that it would like collapse under them, killing them all. From the Sun article, it was described thusly. At last, with a single shriek that cut through the clamor of thousands of voices, a young girl lost her footing and fell down the lower flight of steps. She lay for a moment, and then raised herself on her hands and would have gotten up. But in another moment, she was buried under the bodies of others who fell over the steps after her. She was dead when they got her out more than half an hour afterwards. Men sprang upon the rails at the side and waved the crowds back from both the New York and the Brooklyn sides, but the people continued to crowd on towards the steps. No police were in sight. Men in the crowd lifted their children above their heads to save them from the crush. People were still paying their pennies at both gates and swarming in. By the time this panic subsides, 12 people were crushed to death. It is unclear from the original reports how many of those were crushed via asphyxiation versus trampling, although, uh, as we'll get into later, it was almost certainly asphyxiation. And there were hundreds of others that were injured with various degrees of severity. This, of course, really freaked people out about the Brooklyn Bridge for a while. As a postscript, though, a year later, in 1884, in May, P.T. Barnum, the famous circus guy, tried to instill public trust in the integrity of the Brooklyn Bridge by marching 21 elephants and 17 camels across it to show how strong the bridge was. It actually uh, worked. After that, there were no longer complaints about the Brooklyn Bridge falling down because they think, well, if he can march Jumbo across it, he can certainly march my fat son Wallace across it. As a side note, Jumbo apparently weighed 13,000 pounds. Whoa! Yeah, I did, like, elephant research. <laughs> He's big. 
So yeah, that's sort of the story that you can find very frequently in the loose grouping known as like flight-based human crushes. You know, you'll see this where one person will see a fire or one person will scream or there will be something that causes all of a sudden a large group of people to try going in one direction and there will be something that stops them and then crush happens. Crush. This is an example of what they would call a craze because it's people moving towards something so every year, millions of Muslims from all over the world, about three million at this point a year, make a pilgrimage to Mecca and Saudi Arabia. It's a huge event. Seeking the pilgrimage, if you're able to, is one of the five pillars of Islam. So if you are able-bodied and in a position where you are capable of doing so, you need to go do the Hajj. It's part of your devotion as a Muslim. So this is a huge event. And due to the sheer size of the crowds, unfortunately, it's consistently been the environment for human crushes. So I'm going to tell you about two situations that are similar to one another. The first of these was the 1990 Mecca Tunnel Tragedy. So there is a long 500-meter tunnel that leads from Mecca to the plains of Arafat and the city of Mina, which is a, a city made up of these complicated air-conditioned tents. So it's a, it's a tent city. This tunnel, above the exit to it, there is a pedestrian bridge, and pilgrims will cross on that bridge on the way to the stoning of the devil ritual, and on the way out, they'll leave through the tunnel to the tent city. The stoning of the devil ritual is a ritual where you take rocks and you throw them at these series of three pillars, and they represent the devils that tempted Abraham not to sacrifice his son Ishmael. They, they represent temptation... Unfortunately, there's been a number of tragedies specifically associated with the stoning of the devil ritual because it's a thing where a whole bunch of people are in the same place at the exact same time. It is a coordinated thing. So basically what happened is people were moving through that tunnel. They were moving across that pedestrian bridge. And at some point, a railing on the bridge was bent. And seven people fell off the bridge onto the people who were exiting the tunnel. As a result, the egress from the tunnel was partially obstructed. Now, the tunnel is built to contain a thousand people at a time, which is a reasonable number of people because usually they're just going to be flowing through it, but it was soon filled with five times that amount. These people were pushed forward by hysteria caused by the falling pilgrims and rumors of a demonstration or a terrorist attack. The previous year, there had been a horrible terrorist attack during the pilgrimage, and so people were naturally very wary of that. In the resulting crush, 1,426 people died. Wow. Most of these were actually outside the tunnel itself. So uh, one of the things that happened is the air conditioning in the tunnel failed, and that left those inside and out of it subject to 112 degree Fahrenheit temperatures. And that's particularly dangerous in the hot conditions created by the bodies being pressed together during a human crush because you have a lot of body heat, right? Mm -hmm. And you push people together, you don't have a place for that heat to escape. So people are at serious risk for hyperthermia without the 112 degree weather. Wow. Um, this was not the first human crush tragedy there. It was certainly not the last one. Mm -hmm. So more years than should ever have been, you know, like one is bad enough. But it's surprising how few years in between then and now there have not been a human crush fatality incident. Um, oh, that's horrible. Yeah, but this one was such a horrible case. King Fahd called it a will of God, and this made everyone super, super mad. Yeah, 
he was basically saying that those people would have died no matter where they were. You know, that was their scheduled time. We couldn't do anything. The largest number of people who died in the incident, 680, they were uh, Indonesian pilgrims. And although their government didn't want to get explicitly involved, because there's so there's a whole bunch of political tensions um, surrounding Saudi control of Mecca. Shalid Mawardi, who was head of Indonesia's largest association of Muslim scholars, said, quote, The Saudi government cannot run from the responsibility for the tunnel disaster by simply saying it was an act of God. Following that, the Turkish government and Iranian government also criticized the Saudis, and the Iranians had repeatedly called for international supervision of the Saudi sites. After this, they called for an international investigation into it, but they were all rejected. Mm. Yet these things kept happening. So the Saudis, there's a lot of criticism, I will not go into it here, of how the Saudis take this site, which is supposed to belong to all Muslims, basically, and have turned it into a commercial enterprise wherein they like selectively treat people better or worse based on how Saudi they are, basically. Mm. But, you know, there was no investigation there from an international source. It was all internal. These things kept on happening. And the Saudis started pouring money into trying to reshape the city and crowd management in a way that would prevent this from happening. But that huge number of people was not the worst Hajj disaster. That would be the 2015 Mina Stampede. Just two years ago, at an intersection on the way to the Jem Arat Bridge, which is on the way to doing the stoning of the devil. It kind of shocks me that I didn't hear about this in 2015, because this is yeah. really the first that I've heard of it. I knew about this for various personal reasons, but, you know, it was not well covered in the Western press at all. Um, yeah. And it's amazing that it wasn't, that it's not more covered, because if you're one of the people who thinks that 9-11 was suspicious, I, I, I am not a truther. <laughs> I, I don't believe that. It was an inside job. Are, but, are you saying that, that our note card on the truth wall is not accurate, Jack? <laughs> are you saying um, that our crazy wall might be I'm subject... i it was a reptilian job, I'm oh, sure. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, like, you know, any conspiracy, you can take a collection of facts and you can find things suspicious about them. But sometimes the government makes it more easy. And so... The cases here and how the Saudi government reacted to this are just mind-blowingly shady. Everyone was super pissed, but I'm going to describe what happened first. Two waves of pilgrims converged on a narrow road near a T-shaped intersection in Mina. Basically, all the intersections there are T-shaped, which is really, really bad if you're having to process large amounts of crowds. So what happened is that one of the streets, 206, had been closed or blocked off and pilgrims who would usually take it to get to the location of the stoning of the devil instead were channeled up Street 223. And coming from the opposite direction was a mass of people coming down Street 204. The numbers here don't matter, just imagine a T-junction where two people are converging. One eyewitness was Yambe, the deputy governor of the Nigerian state of Kebi. He described a blockage happening on the route to the bridge. A military vehicle, he said, was used to make a makeshift barrier, and soldiers told people that they had to go a different way, because they're, they're trying to control the flow of the crowd, and they need to have some sort of physical way to block it off so people don't keep going there. Now, behind the people who were being told that there was a blockade were thousands of additional pilgrims who didn't know about the roadblock. People filed in behind the folks already stuck at the blockade, it was incredibly hot, and people didn't have any room to breathe because people started filing in, and there were more and more and more, and suddenly they didn't have any elbow room at all. So Yambe stated, quote, Pilgrims, in efforts to get fresh air, attempted to scale fences of tents on both sides of the road. 
Very few succeeded, while most people just succumbed to the situation. It was at this juncture that we saw dead bodies piling up around us, end quote. Yeah, basically what happened is because there had been two groups of people moving together, there was already one group that was coming to a swell as more and more came up behind and they couldn't see that the people in front were walked off. And then a tangle of people from another direction then filing into that too. And suddenly it basically reached like a, a critical mass and suddenly everyone had to climb on top of each other just to breathe, right? 2,411 pilgrims at least died in this. Wow. And this happened despite literally billions of dollars that were spent on crowd control. Um, there are just so many people mm-hmm. in Mecca every year. Now, the Saudis reported the numbers at a third that amount, the numbers of deaths. They insisted that people in the 700 range actually had died, even though it's extremely well documented who goes on the Hajj. (laughs) From international registries, we know that at least 2,411 died. Yeah. But the Saudis did not want that to be the case. And again, they were talking about it being an act of God that couldn't be controlled. Other nations, of course, were wildly suspicious of the obviously incorrect death tolls. The Saudis, in response to the tragedy, acknowledging that in some way there must be someone complicit for this, claimed to have 28 officials beheaded as punishment for being so reckless, right? Wow! However, those 28 officials who were beheaded, a lot of activists were making the claim that those had actually been prisoners who were executed as a political stunt to throw the heat off of them. So there's like this whole thing going on. But the death count skew is really fucking sketchy, I really have to say. Also, as I said earlier, there were tensions between the Iranians and the Saudi Arabians. One of the people who died was an Iranian diplomat. So some Iranian officials claimed he was kidnapped when the crush was available uh, as a cover Mm. for the kidnapping. King Salman had an investigation done, but almost no information was made public. Now, a Midali al-Rashid, who's a Saudi Arabian professor, she's a social anthropologist, Hmm. said, quote, There's no accountability. It's shocking that almost every year there's some kind of death toll. The renovation and expansion are done under the pretext of creating more space for Muslim pilgrims, but it masks land grabs and vast amounts of money being made by the princes and by other Saudis. Officials in the kingdom had avoided responsibility in part by citing the Islamic doctrine that anyone who dies during the pilgrimage goes to heaven, end quote. So it's kind of like the same kind of clause exists for dying during the Hajj as existed for dying during the Crusades, except, you know, in the the Hajj you don't go murder people. They get out of the tragedy by saying, oh, it's good, all those people went to heaven, so don't worry about it. It's kind of like the justification people give for, like, the horrible bias rates for the death penalty killing innocent people. Oh, God sorts it out. You don't have to worry about justice here on Earth because of the end point is okay, Mm -hmm. so it's fine. Yeah, don't think that we're being condescending to people that are comforted by the notion of, you know, God's will. It's more the... the ire of somebody just saying whoopsie not my problem can't have done anything yeah yeah but this was an interesting case because it was one of the first times uh we started seeing if you look in the in the media it's when you start seeing people criticizing the the coverage of these things as stampedes Mm -hmm. particularly in this case there was a lot of criticism of the labeling of this as a crowd stampede because there wasn't any trampling and stuff it wasn't that kind of thing it was a thing where people got pushed over each other and were crushed to death the layout of Mecca makes these things just really likely. Mm-hmm. Everyone must get within throwing distance of the pillars, for example, for the stoning of the devil. 
And that's where deaths occurred in 1994, 2003, 2005, and 2006. And as Keith Stull, who was one of the uh, architects associated with Amina, says, the crushes are wholly preventable, predictable, and avoidable because of the way that Mecca is laid out. So in 2004, he was hired by the Saudi authorities to basically create designs for the new version of the bridge to get rid of a bottleneck. But one of the problems is that they are making one part of the city super efficient and moving crowds through, and they haven't fixed the other parts. So basically, that just makes it easier for a huge group of people to get into a very confined space. The other things are still choke points. You've expanded your hopper, so you can certainly get more things into the hopper at one point. You know, like you've you've made a bigger water tank on top, but all the pipes going out of that water tank are still just as small. Yeah, and so the Mina Valley encampment, which is where that disaster happened, has not been improved yet. So it's a really dangerous spot. How does this actually happen? Like, what is the yeah. science behind Yeah, because it seems like it's not so much a matter that, like, humans are flighty, emotional, spookable creatures that, you know, run like sheep and then murder themselves like the urban legend of limmings, throwing themselves off a cliff. It seems much more like each individual person is making the best decisions that they can at the time, but there's a couple of things that break down. It seems like in most of these things, there's sort of a, a boiling a frog kind of effect, right? You know, the you've probably heard the saying where if you try to cook a frog, if you just throw him into a pot of hot water, he'll jump out immediately. But if you put the frog in room temperature water and slowly turn the heat up, the frog will boil to death without realizing it. It seems to happen when a number of factors converge. One of them is you need a flow of people into a limited area, right? So you have to have people moving. And then there needs to be something that impedes the flow of those people. Now that could be them hitting a wall or a closed off space, or people at the front of the line will be told to turn around. People keep going into the space. If you're in the back of the crowd, you can't see that the people towards the front have stopped. If you're trying really hard to get away from something, then you may try to push through the people at the front, thinking that, of course, they're going to keep moving because they're also trying to get away from the thing, right? Mm -hmm. There's an assumption or sometimes just the illusion there is space available up ahead when there isn't. It seems like there's more room than there is because at that point in the crowd where you are, you have freer movement. And at the front ranks of the crowd, if they collapse, suddenly that space is compressed, so it looks like everyone is actually moving forward so you can keep going. Mm -hmm. And then more and more people fit into each square meter, right? right? So, like, four persons per square meter, apparently, is the number where you can still move freely. But in crowd crushes, that number will go up. First, you're just smushed up a bit, and then you can't move. You can't move your arms, or then you can't move forward and back. And the pressure starts to become insurmountable. You'll be pressed against a wall or another person. And in those cases, you die of asphyxiation because you can't inflate your lungs. This is a quote from Fruin 1993. It is difficult to describe the psychological and physiological pressures within crowds at maximum density. When crowd density equals the planet area of the human body, individual control is lost as one becomes an involuntary part of the mass. By occupancies of about seven persons per square meter, the crowd becomes almost a fluid mass. Shock waves can be propagated through the mass sufficient to lift people off their feet and propel them distances of three meters or more, so that's ten feet. People may be literally lifted out of their shoes and have clothing torn off. Intense crowd pressures exacerbated by anxiety make it difficult to breathe. 
the heat and thermal insulation of surrounding bodies cause some to be weakened and faint. Access to those who fall is impossible. Removal of those in distress can only be accomplished by lifting them up and passing them overhead to the exterior of the crowd. Then there's also progressive crowd collapse, so that's what they call like a true crush. So that's where you're like smooshed against something or just other people. Mm-hmm. Then you also have progressive crowd collapse. That happens when you have a big crowd moving forward through a confined route, and one person slips or falls, and the other people leaning or pressed against that person, because that person, like a hole's been created, they fall into that hole. They suddenly have a place to go, and the pressure just pushes mm-hmm. them to fall on top of the person who fell. But when they do that, another hole crops up, right? Suddenly, that's a gap, and other people are pushed into that gap by the pressure, and that causes a chain reaction in which people quickly become stacked on top of each other, and you can get mounds of corpses. There are accounts in which you had stacks of bodies 10 feet high that lifted horses off of the ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is what you can see happen in the station fire when people become packed horizontally into the doorway, because, you know, some of the people tripped at the doorway and then it just piles up. The mechanics of how this stuff happens is different from how it's perceived in the media, right? I think that the narrative that we're used to hearing emphasizes the emotional and psychological motivations for why this would happen. People panicking, people being afraid, people being greedy. It's getting wrapped up in the process of humanizing the tragedy and the the emotional burden of what has happened. It uses equally emotional language to talk about the reasons for why it happens. And it seems more that it's connected with things like the transmission of information. Uh, In his article in The New Yorker on this, John Seabrook noted that human crushes are described as always caused by panic and as if people are acting with primitive mob psychology and don't care about others' safety, despite in almost all cases there being evidence that people tend to be moving towards something, not away, and that that desire causes people often to help one another. Some of the deaths actually are caused by people stopping to help those who have fallen. Hmm. People like to blame this human propensity to panic or greed, but that's really not fair. You don't need any of this to get this pattern. And my favorite quote on this matter comes from Keith Stilligan from a Leo Benedictus article in The Guardian. Quote, people don't die because they panic. They panic because they are dying. Which is just chilling. Yeah. I think that we found a couple of instances that support this, right? Where it's not even a really hysterical situation at all. For example, there have been escalator or, like, moving walkway disasters where you have a mechanical thing feeding people into a place that then causes a human crush. One of these disasters was the Maryland Stadium escalator disaster. A gate wasn't removed at the exit of an escalator after maintenance, and that led to people getting on the escalator, and then, you know, there's there's a barrier at the end. So there was a crush against the barrier and then lacerations on the moving steps of the escalator. And then there was a Japanese world exposition disaster that led to a pileup after a passenger fell at a moving walkway exit. People kept getting fed in by the automatic walkway, and so there was a stacking. There was, of course, the Love Parade disaster. So 21 people died from suffocation, and there were approximately 500 more injured there. This was, again, in another sort of, like, tunnel walkway while people were going to essentially a concert. And there were a couple of things that caused the disaster to happen. Like, one, the gate opened late. It was later than people had expected it to, and so they kind of crowded in there because they didn't want to miss the opening of the concert. There was also, like, a bottleneck where police were using 
megaphones to tell people to turn back because they could no longer use this portion of an entrance, but people kept pouring into the tunnel without knowing that the other end of it was closed. I found a study, actually, which was interesting, by Helbing and Mukherjee from 2012 that dismissed the Love Parade disaster as a panic because nobody was actually panicking for anything. They weren't rushing forward to try and get stuff. They weren't fleeing from a fire. They were simply continuing to move forward in the orderly way that they were expected to move forward, but the people at the front of the line were stopped, and the people at the back simply didn't know that. And so the people at the back kept pushing forward. In the paper by Helping and Mukherjee, they say, quote, In Duisburg, crowd turbulence was the consequence of amplifying feedback and cascading effects, which are typical for systematic instabilities. Accordingly, things can go terribly wrong in spite of no bad intentions from anyone. It's simply a matter of when you start getting this many people in motion, what happens ceases to be about the humans involved, and it instead becomes a sort of personless physical process where it involves mass and motion and fluid dynamics, and it doesn't matter what each individual person is thinking or feeling at the time, that collectively they become a system, which I find deeply disturbing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It makes me think of meditations on Malak. It's just like a thing that's that's bigger than us. And there's a point in which it gets to this terrible state where you can't even model it the way you would usually model human behavior. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, before that state, you can. So like before you go over like a four person per square meter density, there are a number of people who are working on how to model those particular situations so you can avoid getting above that. But it's very clear that some things are important. First off, the architecture of the space is important for what's going to happen there. You don't want to have information barriers So the panic narrative is actually dangerous because it prevents authorities from telling crowds what's happening. They're afraid that there's going to be a panic, but that causes an information deficiency where people keep moving in that direction because they don't know what's going on. Yeah. These things are in many ways preventable by crowd management. Yeah, because... The panic narrative blames us on the people in there, and then the authorities who are responsible for laying things out in any reasonable manner, they get off scot-free. Yeah, exactly. Because again, if it was just a stampede with enough room for the number of people that you're expecting, and everybody knows the same deal, it's just a bunch of fast people moving in one direction and they can all get through. Rather than people saying, oh no, I need a Furby so bad I'm going to kill another human being for it. It's instead, oh my god, I'm about to die because of the physical constraints of this space and the fact that nobody particularly knows what's going on and we are all trying to move because we are all functioning on what we were told. So it seems like there are ways to address these kinds of human crushes, but that it requires the quote-unquote people in charge to look at these things in terms of how they can manage it, like their responsibility rather than the crowd of people's individual responsibility for not panicking. I guess the cashing out of this is... What, Jack? What do you think we can learn from human crushes except to just never leave your house? Man, I feel like this is like a justice issue. Like victim blaming crowds of people because we're just like, oh, humans are dumb and mess. And I would never be that stupid. I'm not desperate to, you know, the Furby thing you were talking about, you know, that's a sensational story. So the media reports it. 
there's something really callous about this kind of quiet implication that those people deserve to die because they were crazed or they were just irrationally hysterical. Mm -hmm. Something that particularly struck me reading coverage of the Hajj disasters as a stampede is American newspapers describing them as being uh, crazed with religious further they kept going forward like no fuck you (laughs) that's that's not what happened and you can't make that shit up that those are 2411 people who died it's just so mean right and and so like you see a lot of sexism in this account you see a lot of racism in these accounts like Mm. in, in terms of how the hodge things are covered but also a lot of sexism and like a hysterical woman caused everyone to die like, right yeah or like crazy women who want stuff for their precious little angel babies all crushed forward and then they all died because they're so excitable yeah, it's like just jingle of the way causing corpse piles. That's all I could think of. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um. <laughs> See, that's the thing, is that every crowd over a certain number of people should have a designated Schwarzenegger that can then just sort of, like, plow through them like an icebreaker ship, right? And then get to the end and then undo the blockage in a great big explosion. That is clearly how we can prevent this in the future. <laughs> Oh, oh, I have a good take home from this. Uh-huh. I do have a very uh, concrete take home from this. Okay. Here's what you do if you are caught in a surge. It is recommended that you should move with the surge and to the side. So forward and to the side, forward and to the side. If you're caught in one of these things where the crowd is just pushing forward it and it's mm-hmm. turning into a crush, move with the flow of it. So don't stop because people are going to fall on you and you're going to die. Yeah. Uh, don't stop. Move forward and to the side, out of the way of the thing, to the best of your ability. Well, see, um, that's that's actually concrete advice, because I was going to tell people that if there's ever three other people standing in the same square meter space as them, you should take off your shirt and take off your belt and start belt. whipping people until they back the fuck off! And just make sure that you have, like, a square meter by swinging your belt around your head and just popping them in the cheek if they get too close. That's what he was doing. He was trying to to manage crowd dynamics. Yeah. Yes. That man. That That man was a hero. (laughs) Who knows how many could have died that Black Friday if that proud individual had not taken off off their belt and used it as a whip. (laughs) When you get to a certain point... People are just fucked no matter how rationally they were thinking, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, they say that a dangerous crowd space is four people per square meter. A good cue that is not very technical is if you feel the sensation of people on all four sides of you, if you're being pushed against at all four sides, that's a point where you might want to start thinking about the space that you're in and see if you can go to a part that's a little bit less Mm -hmm. dense. Because at that point, you're not packed close enough that if you move people are going to fall into the hole and it's going to cause a Mm -hmm. uh, collapse yeah or you can just try to start a pit right then and there swinging elbows i'm sorry all of my solutions for crowd crushes are individually violent maybe it's because i need to throw more rocks at things in my spare time but yeah yeah this actually uh kind of backs up my habitual paranoia where i always need to know where the fire exits are I will get caught studying like fire exit plans in buildings and people will be like what the hell are you looking at and i'm like nothing because I don't want to tell them that I'm memorizing how to flee in the case of a fire, like at the dentist. <laughs> know where your exits are, man. And if you think that you might be in a place where it's hard to get to that exit because there's like 20 or 25 people between you and the door, you don't have to be paranoid like me, but, you know, you could be. 
Um, always keep an eye to the crowd context. That's what the researchers keep saying. Mm. Always keep an eye to the crowd environment you're in and mm-hmm. be careful and responsible. And I mean, and now you can be because you know. Yeah, exactly. And this is also not to make you afraid of crowds because, you know, nobody was crushed to death at the women's marches. We first were going to record on that day and we were nervous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I kept like seeing all these people checking in and posting selfies, and I had just done all this research about people being crushed, and I'm like, love you, support you, please don't get crushed to death. We're really glad nobody was crushed. So yeah, thank you for uh, rejoining us for this heavy, heavy episode. We hope that you at least leave it with information, if not necessarily a whole bunch of giggles, but... That's what you come to us for. Yes, and thank you guys. Yeah, we love you very much, even if sometimes we go through these sort of, uh, I guess, dry spells, so to speak. Yeah. But we are hopefully going to be having a more, I guess, uh, consistent, regular. yeah, regular <laughs> recording schedule nowadays. And we have a number of topics that have been both requested and that we are looking into. So you can look forward to those. Um, we are adjusting because with uh, Jack working with her PhD studies and me getting close to having another baby, there's life concerns. We we did not mean to be gone for so long, but sometimes life eats up your free time. And sadly, as much as we would love to be able to be podcasters full time with like wonderful salaries and oh, God, um, that would be good. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. It would just be a dream. Sadly, that's a dream and not reality. So <laughs> yes. we have to do the best we can with what we're doing. Sometimes our audio equipment just decides it doesn't like working. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate, but we think that we've got the bugs kicked out for now. In order to stay consistent, we're going to space out our episodes a little, but we're going to be giving them to you, which is better than nothing. (laughs) So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, good night, listeners. Good night, listeners. This has been Paragoricon, a podcast of strangeness and truth, hosted by Jack Parker and JJ Roy, produced by Will Marone. Opening theme by Chris Zabriskie, Prelude number 15. For more information and references, check out our blog at paragoricon.wordpress.com. There is no hope unmingled with fear, and no fear unmingled with hope. Baruch Spinoza.